If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter number 20. Genesis chapter number 20. It's great to see everybody here this morning. I know we have uh, maybe a couple of families that are out with the flu bug and sickness that's going around. Dave mentioned Carolyn. Please keep her in your prayers. She is over at Liberty Hospital. Uh, Lisa, Andy's wife, is with her this morning as she undergoes some procedures and additional tests. So please uh, continue to keep Carolyn in your thoughts and prayers. Also, please remember um, the Swanson family. Uh, Lydia's father, uh, recently they found a spot and potentially some, some cancer, and he's undergoing a procedure this morning as well. So the Swanson family is away with their extended family to support and pray for him. So please keep those uh, number of prayer requests in your mind as we work our way through the week. But Genesis chapter number 20, the title of this message this morning is The Path of Fear. The Path of Fear. And uh, as soon as I say the word fear, typically something comes to mind for you, right? I think we all, it's a human emotion that is universal across all people in all times is we are going to struggle with, with fear, right? It, it starts as a little kid. I have uh, two of my kids up here in the front. It starts as a little kid. They might have a fear of the boogeyman. The boogeyman's not real, right? Right? Might be a fear of the dark, right? As you put your kids to bed, they're asking to keep those lights on in the closet or to shut the closet door just in case uh, there may be something in there, right? You all remember those times as children. And then it transitions in your adolescent years where you might be self-conscious about maybe your physical appearance or being accepted into a certain group of people at school or sports or athletics or other activities. But guess what? Even as adults, we're not exempt from this emotion of fear. Uh, as we transition to our adulthood, we often struggle with the fear of mounting responsibilities, right? Of gainful employment and paying those bills and taking care of a family and feelings many times of inadequacy. And so fear is, is something that we all experience. Uh, and it's certainly something that in our passage here this morning is going to be front and center. We're going to see two individuals act out in fear. One's going to be rooted in the fear of man, and the other response or action is going to be rooted in the fear of the Lord. This first type of fear, this negative emotion, it's a kind of fear that's many times focused on the earthly, the physical, or the temporal. This is the type of fear that Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 speaks of when it says, an anxious heart weighs a man down. There's another aspect to fear, though, as I'm sure most of us are aware this morning. There's a fear that has a positive sense. We see this described in the Word of God as the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. This type of fear is mindful of the awesomeness, the grandeur, the greatness, the magnificence of God. And it's a feeling of being overwhelmed by those realities of who God is. And as a result of who we are as his creation. This type of fear is mindful of God as creator and sustainer of all life. It's mindful of God's role in this universe as truly sovereign over all things. Thus the response that is stirred up is the fear of the Lord from that individual. This is the fear that the psalmist describes in Psalm 85, verse 9, where it says, Surely his salvation is near to those who 
what? Fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Again, we will observe in our text this morning in chapter number 20, the path of fear will always arrive at its destination. And there's two destinations. There's a destination for the fear of man, and there's a destination for the fear of the Lord. And no matter what path you're on, you're going to arrive at a destination. The question is, what is it? The fear of man is going to arrive at a destination of deception, confusion, and potentially life-altering consequences. And the other will arrive at clarity, restitution, and humility with life-giving deliverance. With that said, and before we deep dive into chapter number 20, I want to remind us of some of the context that we've covered up until now in our series through the book of Genesis. What is the reminder that we need to keep in in point here is that context matters. Context matters. And the life of Abraham and Sarah, we've seen them go from despair and anxiety and uncertainty around God's promises and His fulfillment of them to where they are seemingly climbing on the mountaintop of a spiritual experience of this interaction with God and them being renewed in their understanding of who God is and His faithfulness to fulfill His promises in and through their life despite what their circumstances of their age and everything else around them may be telling them. Context is very important as we continue to work our way through this book of Genesis. Where have they come? Promises were given. A covenant relationship is established with Abraham. Multiple decades of waiting have ensued. And they've struggled with growing weary. They've struggled with the human emotions of fear. Has God truly said? And will He truly come through with what He said He was going to do? Abraham and Sarah have struggled with these emotions. And as we've worked our way through the life of Abraham and Sarah, have we not truly seen some weak spots in the armor of Abraham as Sarah as well? And this morning in chapter number 20, we're going to see another exposure of a failure in the character of Abraham as he works his way through this promise of hopefully fulfilling in the person of Isaac that will come very, very soon in chapter number 21 with his birth. So this morning, let's open in prayer, quiet our hearts and our minds and ask the Lord to use his word to change us, to be more like his son. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray that you would quiet my heart and my mind and that you would speak in and through your word Where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. And as we open up your word, we're mindful of those realities that you are a good, good father. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us the body of Christ. And it truly has been good to dwell in your house this morning. So how how we have worshiped you in song, how we've worshiped you in the public reading of Scripture, as we have gathered our hearts and our minds together in public prayer, I pray, Father, that you alone would be glorified in and through the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that we would not just be hearers of it, but you would cause us to take action on your truth, that we would be changed to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your precious and holy name.
Amen. So as we open up Genesis chapter number 20 this morning, the circumstances that we see should seem somewhat familiar. This isn't the first time that Abraham has come up with his own plan in the midst of traveling into a foreign country that he is sojourning to and through. Abraham is going to repeat this terrible lie that he established all the way back, if you remember in the context of Genesis chapter number 12. So the big idea of our text this morning is this. God often uses our imperfect faith to point others to himself, who is the only true and perfect God. I'll say that one more time. The big idea of our text this morning is this, that God uses our imperfect faith to point others to himself, the only true and perfect God. So we're going to make just three simple observations of how fear will influence these two men, Abraham and Abimelech, right here in Genesis chapter number 20. One will take action based on the fear of men. One will take action based on the fear of the Lord. Point number one is this. Abraham acts in the fear of man and intentionally deceives another. Abraham acts in the fear of man and intentionally deceives another. Verse number one of chapter 20. And there Abraham journeyed toward the ter- territory of Negeb and lived in Kadesh and Shur, and he so- sojourned to Gerar. So just so that we can put some context geographically to where we are actually at here. That's a small map, so I apologize. I thought it was going to be a little bit bigger than that. But uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's coming from, is right over here on kind of the, uh, I guess that would be the east side of the Dead Sea. So we've got Abraham and Sarah just on the heels of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are now going to be traveling over to Negev, right in there. Okay? And so then we have down here to the south, we have Kadesh, and we have this area of Shur, which most people think it's just going to be to the north and potentially to the west of of Kadesh. So we have Gerar up here, just right there. We have the territory of Negab. We have Kadesh down here. So more than likely, Abraham, Sarah, and his people and his herds are going to be traveling to this area for a number of reasons, right? They've just witnessed horrible destruction, have they not? Abraham is more than likely wanting to distance himself from that to some degree. Not only that, but Abraham is a herdsman, right? So he's going to be looking for new pasture lands. And regardless of the actual reason, some differ on what it actually is. He's traveling out of where he was from this area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to be moving to the west, to this territory of Negab. And Abraham, in verse number two, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my what sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So here we have Abraham with our first point, dis- intentionally deceives the king of Gerar, Abimelech. So why would Abraham do this? What was his motivation? Why would he intentionally deceive the king of Gerar, not just for the first time, but the second time in Abraham and Sarah's relationship, he's now throwing Sarah under the bus and asking her to even lie on his behalf. So why? What was his concern? His concern was for his life, 
for his well-being. His motivation for this deception was self-centered and self-focused. There was no concern about Sarah and the impact that this would have on her. His only focus was centered on his safety. Verse number two, this is the key verse that points to the content of our key first point is that he intentionally deceives another. And to understand the gravity and depravity of this action, again, we look back to chapter number 12. You can turn with me there. And let's read verses 10 through 13. Chapter 12, verses 10 through 13 of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, what did he do? He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with who? me, that it may go well with me because of you, so that whose life? My life may be spared for your sake. First subpoint is that the fear of man will always negatively impact our faith. The fear of men will always negatively impact our faith. So Abraham intentionally deceives this king Abimelech, acting in the fear of men with his own interests in mind. But before we throw Abraham under the bus and hit him over with a two by four and say, how could you do this? Can you not take a step back in your own life and consider how often you and me included operate in the fear of men? Do you ever try to control your own circumstances of your life? Do you ever feel like God's sovereignty and his control over the circumstances that you're experiencing simply aren't good enough, so you need to help God a little bit? We take those reins back in our control. We dethrone God and his sovereignty over our life and circumstances. And what do we try to do? We try to insert our own sovereignty over our life and circumstances. Friends, it's important to note that we're no different, really, than Abraham. This is a universal and human challenge that we struggle with, not just then, not just now, but for all of mankind, they will struggle with this challenge of the fear of man, of altering our choices and our thoughts and our interactions, our tone of voice, our responses to others based off of the fear of what's going to happen to me based off of their understanding of me. When we act in the fear of man, we communicate something to God. We might not communicate it verbally through our words, but certainly by the fruit of our actions, we're communicating something about our belief of God back to himself. What is that? That sovereignty, again, is not good enough. There's some deficiency in the character of God. Because if his authority and his sovereignty and his will truly would be perfect, surely I wouldn't be experiencing you fill in the blank. This is why James tells us we can count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials. Why? Because James knew that God uses trials, difficulty, circumstances to shape and mold us into what he would have us to become. That we could use, be used for his glory as a vessel 
fit for the master's use. So we implicitly state that God's sovereignty actually lacks supreme authority and thus we exercise our own sovereign way over the circumstances that are present in our life. Once again, Abraham acts in the fear of men and deceives another. The second subpoint of our first truth is this, that the fear of men will always negatively impact relationships. The fear of men and acting in that will always negatively impact the relationships that are in our life. Abraham goes rogue in this passage. He defaults back a number of years when they had this play in Egypt and there was fear, there was anxiety, there was uncertainty. He's going into a land where he's not certain that they fear God and as a result, he defaults to his own understanding. And there's collateral damage here. The fear of man will negatively impact relationships. See in verse three, God comes to Abimelech, back in chapter 20 of verse three, God comes to Abimelech and confronts him concerning the events that led to Abimelech taking Sarah, Abraham's wife. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this section of verses. It took me a while to wrap my mind around it because you have a number of different really relationships that are represented here. We have Abimelech and Abraham. That's the obvious one. Abraham comes into this king of Gerar's country and his territory, and Abraham intentionally deceives him, tells him that his wife is his sister, and that's going to cause some collateral damage and much challenge. But then you have this confrontation of God and Abimelech in chapter number 20, but what don't we see? What interaction seems to be missing from our understanding? An interaction between God and, and Abraham. Again, in my own understanding, there seems to be an issue with how this plays out. But we know in God's perfect way, in His perfect understanding, His perfect word, we know there's no issue here. But in my understanding, I'm looking for God to confront who? Abraham. But what does he do? He confronts Abimelech. Let's talk about that for a moment. Let's read our verses. Verse number three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocent of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sin against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We have a king that's deceived, and based on that deception, he takes a certain course of action. That king is now strongly confronted by God based on the deception. Based, excuse me, not on the deception, but on the reality of those actions. So God's confrontation doesn't address necessarily right out of the gates the deception of Abraham. 
God is looking at the content and the reality of the circumstances. Abimelech has done what? He has taken another's wife. Deception or otherwise, this is the reality of what has happened. So God confronts Abimelech, not on the deception, but on the basis of the reality of those actions. What does this tell us about God? It points us to the reality of who God is. His character is what? It's holy. And he is a just God. And he has certain expectations of how we are to relate to him in that relationship. So let's back up and remove this deception. Is God's judgment, deception aside, is God's indictment and judgment of Abimelech's actions justified? Should it be allowed that this king can take the wife of of Abraham? Certainly not. So the punishment does, in fact, to use Dave's language from last week, fit the crime, right? The punishment does fit the crime. He has taken a wife, and that is a very severe offense in the eyes of God. Let's go back to our context one more time. Verse number, excuse me, chapter 12, again, verse number 3. Chapter 12, verse number 3. And the promises that the Lord has laid out in this newly forged relationship with Abraham, what was the promise that God gave him? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will, what? Curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is God really being true to his promises. Taking another man's wife dishonors the man himself. So God is staying true to his covenant relationship with Abraham in how he is relating to Abimelech and how he confronts his actions of taking Abraham's wife. So Abraham certainly, what does he do? He complicates this story with his deception. His deception was not needed. It was wrong. There's no justifying it. There's no rationalizing Abraham's actions. But in these first few verses of God confronting Abimelech, it's on the content of the action itself. Abraham isn't off the hook. He will be confronted later in this passage. So Abraham complicates with his deception. As a result, it complicates his relationship and interactions with Abimelech. This is a universal truth, friends, that when we exercise our sovereignty over the circumstances that we're experiencing, we will always stir up difficulty. 100% of the time, when we insert ourselves into God's plan and try to usurp his plan and his way and his timing, we always will stir up difficulty, deception. And what is exposed in us when we do that? Our depravity. Our sin nature is exposed in this, right? going all the way back to the first few chapters of Genesis. Has God truly said? Questioning the word of God. Placing ourselves as that point of authority and understanding, that point of truth, and taking action based on those perceptions. Why Why is our sin nature exposed in that point of deception? It's because it's who we are. Apart from the grace of God, we are but sinners. Apart from the grace of God, we are but sinners. 
So when we operate outside of God's will and his plan, when we are led by our own way instead of being led by the spirit and we're acting in the flesh for fleshly motives, our own will, our own well-being, and our own desires, the fruit of that will be what? It'll be the flesh. If we sow with the spirit, we'll reap the spirit. If we sow with the flesh, we'll reap the flesh. So we have this universal truth being exposed right here in Genesis chapter number 20. And friends, when we operate in the fear of man, what are we essentially doing? We're taking our eyes off of God. We're no longer resting and trusting and waiting in his perfect plan and his perfect way. We take our eyes off of a holy and good God and we place them on who? Ourselves. And at that moment, when we have that shift of focus from God to ourselves, at that moment, the glory of God is the furthest thing from our minds, is it not? God being glorified in and through our life, whether by life or by death, we are the Lord's. Isn't that the furthest thing from our minds? It's taking up our cross and following Him daily. The furthest thing from our mind is loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The furthest thing from our mind at that point is loving God and loving others. We're focused on ourselves. Certainly Abraham has slipped into this mode as he has sojourned into this territory of Negab. He's not focused on the covenant promises of God. He's not focused on this recent interaction with the Lord where he has reinforced and reinstated this relationship and given him the sign of, of circumcision and promised that he will give him a son through Sarah? He's forgotten that. He's focused on his well-being. He's focused on his fear. He's focused on his life. Not focused on the glory of God. We're focused on our own way. So what do we do in that moment? We manipulate we micromanage, we scheme, we justify, we deceive ourselves and even others. All for the purpose of what? My desired outcome. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When we are following in our own way, what are we doing? We're following our heart. Some of the worst advice that we hear in our culture is just follow your heart, isn't it? Never follow your heart. Follow the Lord. Follow His Word. Follow the leading of the Spirit. Because our heart will always lead us to ourselves. Quick side note on collateral damage in relationships as a result of deception. There's a relationship that isn't explicitly stated here in chapter number 20, but it's certainly there. And it's the relationship of who? Abraham and Sarah. And we just take a step back. Can you consider how that relationship was negatively impacted as a result of Abraham once again urging Sarah to follow into this scheme and this plan that they drudged up all the way back in Egypt? That worked out well for him there. Let's try it again, right? This negative impact, this collateral damage on the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. 
This passage certainly isn't a, a passage on marriage. I don't want to go too rabbit trail on this, but I think there's some applications here, right? As we consider the whole of Genesis and how we've seen their relationship develop over time, I think we can certainly give a testimony that their relationship probably could be better than what it is today. So men, a reminder to us that our relationship with our wife is a direct reflection of our relationship with who? With God. Our relationship with our wife is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. And so if your relationship with your wife is struggling today, it could be a great leading indicator for us to go back and do some business and consider, how's my relationship with the Lord? Am I leading in the home? Am I embracing my role as, as the head of the home and, and setting the bar and the standard for spiritual leadership, not only of my wife, but potentially my kids? Am I owning up to that role, that institution of marriage that God established all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis? That a man should leave his father and mother and he should do what? Cling to his wife and they shall become one Flesh, this was God's plan, his design. It was the first institution that he established on the earth is marriage. And in the New Testament, we have even a greater responsibility within marriage because it is given to us as a picture of the, what, the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 tells us that, men, we are to love our wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is your wife right now living in the collateral damage of your deception, your fear of man? Your excuses? Again, we don't get Sarah's complaint. We don't get the elbow and the ribs of Abraham here. We don't see a lot of that interaction. Anything I were, I were to give there would simply be conjecture. But friends, can you imagine the impact where Abraham is leveraging his headship in that home to cause Sarah to what? Essentially deceive as well. Now we know all the way back in garden that none of us are innocent, right? We know that we all have an equal part of sin, but we know that that sin, who is that ultimately hung on? Adam. And sin passed upon all men for all have Sinned. And so we have this same struggle. The same struggle that Adam had. The same struggle that Abraham had. is the same struggle that we will have in our own home, in our own marriage. To stand in the gap. To step up to the plate and lead our home for His glory. And I wonder, friends, are we doing that, man? God in His perfect plan has set man as the head of the home. That's not a popular thing to say in the day we live in, is it? But when we look at what that actually means from a biblical perspective, I believe we as the church and the world that we live in would potentially see this concept of headship in a much different light. Friends, your relationship with your wife should be much more than your indentured servant. 
to fix your meals and do your laundry. This idea that women should be barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen is a horrible travesty that we even as a church have been guilty of at times. So at Liberty Hills Bible Church, we believe in and by God's grace practice what? A complementarian view of marriage. One that states that there have been clear and distinct roles within the home, but we are both man and woman, male and female, husband and wife, created equal in the image and likeness of God. Distinct roles, equal in value and personhood. So I believe there's an application, an opportunity for us as men to consider how am I influencing my wife's relationship with the Lord? Man, do our wives feel nourished and cherished as a result of our actions both inside and outside of the home? Abraham, acting in the fear of the Lord, negatively impacted his relationship with Sarah. It negatively impacted his relationship and interactions with Abimelech. And he acted in the fear of men. We see, as we move on to this passage, the seriousness of this offense before a holy God. In verse three, God describes the king as what? A dead man. But then again, he reminds him all the way back at the end of our passage in verse number seven, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely what? Die. You and all who are yours. Friends, Abraham's actions to deceive and to manipulate had a horrible ripple effect and impacted many other people in his life. And this is a universal truth of sin in our own life. Our sin will never just influence and impact me and myself. It will impact potentially my kids. It will impact my wife who's back in the nursery. It will impact my leadership in the church. It will impact my relationship with the other elders. It will Im impact my relationship with you as a fellow covenant member. It will influence and impact every area of my life. And we see the seriousness then of Abraham's deception in operating in the fear of man. So in verse 6, God does acknowledge the deception, but he also acknowledges what the integrity of Abimelech's actions. But God still holds Abimelech accountable to right this wrong that has been done. So this entire interaction, I don't know as you're reading it through it, as Dave read it in our public reading of scripture this morning, this entire interaction, the deception on the part of Abraham is never out of control. It's never out of control. Do you see also not just the seriousness of the fence, but do you truly see the sovereignty of God in this moment? That although Abraham goes rogue, and although Abimelech takes action based on that deception, verse number six says what? Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was who? I, capital I, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Therefore, God did not even let Abimelech touch her. 
So we see right here, God's sovereignty throughout this interaction with Abimelech. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. This is beautiful. Even in these sinful and rogue actions, God is still there. God is still there. Why is it important that God notes in chapter 20 here that Abimelech did not touch her. He didn't take her into his, uh, uh, into his chambers. He had no interactions with her. Why is that important? What was the promise that God has given Abraham and Sarah? It's the promise of who? Isaac. So not only is God concerned about acknowledging the integrity of Abimelech, but he's also concerned about maintaining the integrity of who? Sarah. There is to be no doubt that what we're about to go through next week in chapter 21 is a true miracle and work only of the Lord, the El Shaddai, the God Almighty, that he alone could do this work of allowing the barrenness of Sarah to be released and her to be with child and for Isaac to be born as he promised. And so we see the sovereignty of God in maintaining the integrity even of Sarah. So number two, Abraham acts in the fear of man and adamantly defends his actions. Abraham acts in the fear of man and adamantly defends his actions. This confrontation that now we see that transitions from God to Abimelech now transitions from who? From Abimelech to Abraham. So Abimelech's got some words to say to Abraham, as would I, right? And so let's, let's read a few of these verses here in verse number nine. Excuse me, verse number eight. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He's not waiting. He's getting right after it. He rose early in the morning. He called all his servants and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Verse nine, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing. And this is where Abraham is now confronted and he responds. And his response is challenging at best. Let's break down the, the response that Abraham has to this confrontation with Abimelech. This is going to be indicative, again, of how operating the fear of man will spiral into further depths. So we see first that this passage that Abraham goes to the extreme defense as he's confronted. So the first one is this. We see that Abraham attempts to justify his actions in verse number 11. Verse number 11, it says this. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. He's justifying his actions based on the fear of his own life. Now, was that, a, was that a true assumption that Abraham made of Abimelech in his territory of Negev? No, it wasn't. At that time, they may not have been true worshipers of the one true God, but as God confronted Abimelech in his dream, how did Abimelech respond? 
in the fear of the Lord, in total and immediate obedience. And so Abraham's assumption about the king and about his response led him to take matters in his own hand and to pursue deception. And so now he's confronted with that reality. And what does Abraham do? He simply tries to justify his actions based on fear of his life. Secondly, we see that Abraham attempts to rationalize his actions. Verse number 12, he says this, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. He's trying to rationalize his deception. Well, what I really told you, Abimelech, wasn't truly false. It was kind of true, kind of not. And as a result, I really didn't tell a lie at all. I didn't deceive you, just misunderstood. Have you ever been there in your sin? Trying to rationalize your way through it, trying to get somebody to see a different perspective than what the reality really is. This is what we call smoke and mirrors of being called on the carpet, right? Not owning what he actually did, he's trying to rationalize his sin and his deception before Abimelech, the one who he has offended. So go on. We see thirdly that he doesn't stop there at justifying and rationalizing. Thirdly, he attempts to blame God for his actions. Look at me in verse number 13. This is unbelievable. Verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, who's, what's he doing? He's pointing the finger, not at himself, but he's pointing the finger at God, saying, God, God caused me to come up with this plan because he's the one that took me out of the comfort zone of my homeland and displaced me and caused me to sojourn in this area. He's the one that caused the famine. And so I had to go down into Egypt and fear for my life. He's the one that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah that has now pushed me out into the territory of Negab. It's God that caused me. Have you ever been there before? Rationalizing. Justifying. Even blaming God for your sin and your failure. Third and final point this morning is this, that Abimelech acts in the fear of the Lord and is graciously delivered. It's a beautiful response from this king that has been confronted with this wrong that he's been deceived into. What does Abimelech do? He offers complete restitution for this wrong that was done. Abimelech wants it to be crystal clear to God and to others that he was now acting in the fear of the Lord and in total obedience to what God had commanded. I notice something interesting here in this final section. Abraham still seems to be concerned about who? Himself. Who is the king in these final verses concerned about in this passage? Look at me verse number 16. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. By the way, he's saying brother. He's going with, with Abraham's rationalized description of himself. 
Verse 16, and Sarah said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. I love this verse. Abimelech is completely pursuing total obedience. He wants there to be no doubt that that he is attempting to make wrong in the most complete way he possibly can the wrong that has been done. Abimelech wasn't concerned about himself. He certainly may have been motivated by these stark and uh, severe warnings that the Lord has given him about his life, but we certainly see that he's concerned about more than just that. He's concerned about the integrity and the reputation of Sarah. Before everyone, you are vindicated. How does the Lord respond to the obedience of Abimelech in this passage? We see total and complete deliverance from the consequences that had fallen on the household of Abimelech. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the household and Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech and also healed the wife and the female slaves. Now they bore children. So what's our takeaway here in Genesis chapter number 20? From an Old Testament perspective, how do we bridge this, this gap of time and, and find these, these uh, timeless principles that we can cling to? And what do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves as a result of this text? Friends, this is not a great reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to work things out, because guess what? We will always fail 100% of the time. Adam failed, and that sin passed upon all men again, because all have sinned. Thus, Abraham too was a sinner and failed in many great ways, as we have chronicled thus far in his life and story and his relationship with Sarah. But despite that sin, what does God do? God still chooses to use Abraham and to bless him in incredible ways. Friends, I don't look to Abraham. I don't look to Adam. I won't look to Isaac. I won't look to anybody else for my ultimate hope. For there is a true and better Adam. There is a true and better Abraham who has not failed, who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, completed the law, went to the cross, bore our sins on Himself, and willingly gave His blood as an atonement for our sin. And if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised Him, Jesus, from the dead, there's a promise that we will be saved. And that's our hope. We don't look to any man or ourselves for our hope. We look to Jesus and Him alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, your grace, and your mercy in our life. Father, I pray that there's somebody here this morning who may be on the path of fear. Not the fear of the Lord, but maybe the fear of men. They're deceiving, they're justifying, they're rationalizing, trying to keep control of the circumstances around them. They have spinning plates everywhere around them and they're starting to crash 
down on top of them and the weight of that sin, the weight of that deception, that weight of all of that is too much. I thank you for Christ this morning. I thank you that despite our failures, that you've given us a plan of hope. And if we can confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you that the path of fear doesn't have to be a destination of destruction and end and consequences, but it can be hope of life, a relationship with you for all eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.